This is Unaided, the brand building podcast brought to you by Leakside, a team snap company. Get ready to learn about brand marketing strategy from the experts. Here's your host, Evan Brandoff. Hello and welcome to the Wingrin podcast. I'm your host, Evan Brandoff. Today, we welcome Abe Kmart onto the show. Abe is the CEO and founder of True Made Foods, and he is on a mission to help save American family occasions by making them healthy again. Let's get into it. Abe, welcome to the show. How are you? And thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Honored to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. We are a household that absolutely loves the True Made products. <laughs> That's great to hear. See the sign right behind you. <laughs> for those that aren't familiar, can you tell us about True Made Food? Yeah, so we make a whole line of condiments and sauces, ketchup, barbecue sauces, mustards, hot sauces, sriracha, all without the sugar. We cut the sugar out and we naturally sweeten our products with real veggies instead. So we use real whole fruits and veggies, pureed, cooked into the sauce to give that natural sweetness that you miss. But we take out all the corn syrup and added sugar. So like our ketchup is made with tomatoes, obviously, apple, carrots, butternut squash, and then, you know, vinegar and spices and still tastes like ketchup. So it reads like a smoothie ingredient, but you're tastes like ketchup. You have no idea that you're not eating a regular ketchup. It's true. It really is such an amazing product. I know you're a big family guy. You got four kids. Have you done the taste test yet? The blind taste test with the kids, True Made Foods Ketchup versus, you know, other name brand. I wouldn't be here talking to you right now and we wouldn't have this company if my kids didn't love the product and didn't prefer it <laughs> over everything else. And what we found, you know, my kids were the ultimate taste testers, my picky eaters at home. And this is the reason I started the company is because like, you know, trying to feed my kids healthy, didn't want sugar, trying to feed them a lot of veggies, you know, basic stuff. But ketchup was a constant in the household that I hated. Like I was trying to get it out because I'm like, I knew it was just red sugar. I mean, it's more corn syrup than tomatoes in regular ketchup. And even the organic ketchups are still all cane sugar. It's got more sugar per ounce than ice cream. It's like a dessert, you know, regular ketchup. It's terrible for you. It's like a serving has four grams of sugar, which is a teaspoonful of sugar. So you imagine you're just pouring, you know, if you've ever seen kids eat it, you know, they're eating a lot more than a, a tablespoon, which is a serving size. So, yes, but like, you're not going to stop cooking out, right? You got family and kids, like, you're not going to go to stop going to ballparks or going to lowly cookouts or, you know, going to, you know, Friday night football games where all these things use ketchup and barbecue sauce and so on. And so, and we love going out for burgers. Like nothing I like more than getting, doing burgers for my kids and stuff like this. So and having fun ways about it, but like ketchup is always there. So I'm like, you know, burgers on their own, it's not that unhealthy. Barbecue on its own is not that unhealthy. It's the ingredients that make it unhealthy, right? It's the ingredients and how it's made. And so, and that's our theory. It's all about whole foods. You probably hear a lot of, there's so much noise about nutrition and how you're supposed to eat out there and you should be vegan or keto and yada, yada. Ignore it all. It's all just whole foods. Eat whole foods, unprocessed foods as much as possible and cut out the added sugars. Added sugars are the, the 90-10, not the 80-20, mm -hmm. the 90-10 when it comes to eating healthy. Cut out the added sugars and the artificial sweeteners, and that's the easiest thing you can do. And then, you know, eat whole foods. And so that's what we did. We tried to create products that were made as close to being as whole foods as possible. And, you know, we don't want to give up the backyard cookout. We don't want to give up trips to the ballpark just because, you know, we're trying to eat healthy. You know, the, we don't have to throw out the grill and start eating kale and quinoa salads outside. Let's, you know, eat 
real food, better buy the better hamburger, buy the better buns, and use our ketchup, and boom, like you've got a real meal. So you know that's kind of what we that's our goal as uh, True Made Foods to allow America to keep and families to keep these habits and these processes and like you know because it's not about the event it's not about the occurrence it's just the ingredients that have been put into it over the last 50 years yeah. and that's the thing that we have to clean up and so you know i want my kids to have these experiences and i just want them to t- you know to take the guilt away from it at the same time as a parent and so that's why the whole purpose of our company so yeah so you clearly practice what you preach in terms of being healthy or, you know, in good shape, it seems, at least over Zoom. Have you always been health conscious? What's your story yeah. in terms of being health conscious? <laughs> yeah, I mean, kind of like a slow awakening towards everything because, you know, I'm, I, I'm old. I'm a 45-year-old man, so I was born in the 70s and grew up in the 80s. So I grew up as lucky that yeah, I grew up with an Italian mother and we cooked a lot in our family. You know, we cooked a lot at home. That's how I, I got the idea for the ketchup is like, we always use carrots as the natural sweetener in our pasta sauce and we we're making pasta sauce like weekly. You know, ragu is a four letter word in our house. And like, my parents didn't own a microwave until I went off to college. Like, it was just like, we just cooked a lot in our house and we really cared about food. I mean, not to say we didn't eat bad food. Like, we still, there was still bad food around and there's a lot of unknowns like, my parents would still buy juice and things like this, which of course now we know is just as bad as soda. You should not buy. Don't eat juice, right? It's like the apples are good. The apple juice is terrible for you, right? right. It's like it's pure fructose. goes right to your liver. And of course, you know, we still ate McDonald's, things like this. It wasn't like a perfect upgrade, but we, but I was introduced enough to good food and how to cook. And I was taught how to cook at an early age. And I think that's the key thing, especially as an oldest, uh, the oldest sibling and both my parents worked all the time. So I was always in the kitchen helping out and always having to make my own food and always make food for my siblings. I had to learn how to cook and I learned my way around the kitchen at an early age. And I think that's key for anybody for really who wants to eat healthy is like just understanding how food is made and making your own food makes a big difference. And so then like when I was in college and then after college, when I was in the Navy, you know, I always had roommates who grew up much more on the more on the standard American diet side. And, you know, when I, I had some roommates in Florida, when I was stationed there at Mayport, that had uh, that were very much on the standard American diet, kind of grow up like when I grew up with the ground beef diet of like you know, you know, hamburgers, tacos, pasta out of the jar, and like that's it. The three meals that were rotated through their household. Like in the, we were in our early twenties, this guy, my roommate, is struggling with his weight, and I'm not, and he's eating much more crap. That the time we look back at crap. But he's criticizing what I'm eating because I'm pouring olive oil on everything because I grew up like so literally I was probably the only like 23 year old who's going buying like huge things of olive oil at the time. Yeah, this is like 2001, 2002. And like I'm buying like gigantic things of olive oil and like pouring it all over like every single meal I ate was like covered in olive oil and usually garlic. And he was like, there's so much calories in that. It's so wrong. And I was like, this can't be right. Like olive oil can't be bad for you. And like the chocolate syrup he's drinking out of the bottle, like <laughs> right? So it can't be good for you. We so I just started doing more research on my own and just kind of like slowly kind of over then the next like 10, 15 years, and then I accelerated when I had kids, like really started doing research on like what it is that you need to do to stay healthy. And as I got older too, you know, as you get older, I started thinking more about this and like what you need to do to stay healthy. And I just kind of it's just always kind of like my background habit and as a cook too as somebody who's avid about cooking like it just kind of 
felt right that falling back onto like the way people used to cook, like the way our grandparents cooked or something like that was completely healthy. You know, for a while we were like slamming in the eighties and nineties, like slamming the way our grandparents cooked. Like, like my great grandma on my dad's side is Southern from the Ray, Virginia. And she was a famous cook for, in DC for being like, she was, her parties apparently were like amazing because of her cooking. And she, you know, always had lard and butter, like, and that was her two secrets of like cooking right there. Right. But didn't use a lot of sugar and anything that wasn't a dessert. And, you know, I, because that's what was expensive, you know, pre-World War II. Right? right. So she cooked, she grew up poor. So she cooked that way, like the way they did in the mountains in Virginia, you know, looking back at this in the way, like my mom used to say, it was like only lazy Italians use sugar in their sauce. Cause like in Sicily where her grandparents were from, they had carrots, they grew in the garden. They had carrots all the time, use carrots. You didn't have access to sugar. Sugar was refined. It was expensive. It came from factories. Like, so anything that came from a factory back in the day was, you know, extremely expensive. Now it's like the opposite. Anything that comes from the ground seems to be expensive mm. and anything that comes from a factory is extremely cheap. Right. But so it's probably why our sugar consumption has increased by 200 times since 1850. You know, the average amount of sugar that the, uh, that an American eats has increased by 200 times between 1850 and 2000. How does that compare to other countries? I'm not sure, but I'm sure we're leading the way. And then yeah. probably the other English speaking countries are not are shortly behind. England really drove the sugar industry early on, from what I understand. If you read uh, Gary Tobb's book, The Case Against Sugar, like, and it, sugar is just like, there's so many things wrong with it when you look at the history of it. And like, it drove slave trade too. Like, created slavery, or modern day slavery, or the after, slavery of African Americans, because it was such an awful crop to uh, work on sugarcane that they couldn't even get indentured servants to work on it. They couldn't get, you know, local mm. people to work on it and things like that. So they, um, they had to use slaves because it was such an awful job. And so that and then the demand for sugar that was coming out of England at the time and created that, I don't know if you remember your elementary school history, but like that slave triangle, the trade triangle, of like sugar, slaves, and rum that went from the Caribbean to England and Africa, like back and forth and stuff. It's really interesting. My wife and I are watching The Sopranos right now. And I would say about 60% of our cooking at home is Italian food inspired by The Sopranos. So I'm jealous of your upbringing. It sounds like incredible time cooking with your mom, making sauce. And I could see how that would yield you being into health and wanting to create those experiences that you had had at home. Why isn't everyone using carrots to sweeten their sauce? And why aren't we applying that same rationale to, to things mm -hmm. like, like ketchup? That makes a lot of sense. Before we get more into True Made Foods, your background is, is so interesting and incredible. Did you grow up in Virginia? I was born in DC. I lived in Virginia until I was 10. And okay. then we moved to Brooklyn, New York. And I lived in Brooklyn until I was 16. And then we moved to Maryland, to the suburbs of D.C. in Maryland, and I finished enrolled in public high school in uh, Maryland and finished graduated from Mer uh, Montgomery County Public High Schools there. So yeah, a really good school. It was amazing public school. Like, it was an incredible school. So now I feel like I can claim to be more from Brooklyn than the people who live there now, but, you know. You're pretty Brooklyn. I could see it. <laughs> <laughs> so you went to Vanderbilt, then you joined the Navy. Did you always want to, or was that right after school? Yeah, I went to Vanderbilt on an ROTC scholarship. So okay. uh, the Navy paid for me to go to school. That was kind of always the plan. In high school, I decided I wanted to join the Navy. So I had even talked, looked at it in, into enlisting. And then, but uh, 
my parents were pushing me hard on the officer program because they wanted me to go to college, obviously. So they, so I got into the Naval Academy and I got the ROTC scholarship. I actually turned down the Naval Academy to go take the ROTC scholarship to Vanderbilt, which I thought for me was a really, really good decision personally. I think I needed that time to mature an undergrad and make stupid mistakes, you know, and be crazy a little bit, you know, free from the responsibility, get that out of my system. So and have life and you realize you, and you're still going to school for free and you know you get commissioned right after you graduate at the same rate that academy guys might need you to have a conversation with my nephew who has his mindset on going to the naval academy i like the route that you took so <laughs> well first i think for other people the naval academy is great like if my kids decide if my sons if my, my daughter decide to go to the naval academy i'd be totally excited about that because i probably don't want them doing what I did in college. So like, I prefer <laughs> they went to the Naval Academy for my kids. And my wife went to the Naval Academy too. So she was a 2000 grad. We met in the Navy afterwards. And this is just ironic, but it's like one of the reasons I turned down the Naval Academy because at 18 years old, I wanted to go to a school with more girls. And back then, <laughs> Naval Academy was like 10% women, you know, and obviously, <laughs> and then ironically, 10 years later, I ended up marrying. Uh, Naval Academy graduate. That's funny. <laughs> good. She probably wouldn't have liked me. She didn't met me when I, at that age. So it all out. works out. After the Navy, you lived abroad for quite a bit. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So I was a helicopter pilot in the Navy stationed in Florida. And then uh, you know, I deployed a bunch into for Iraq and for the Iraq war. And then and we were in the Gulf. And then uh, for my shore duty, after you do a flying tour, you do a shore duty where you're working like in an office, like headquarters type thing or you're teaching. And I went to U.S. European Command and I got stationed in England. So I was stationed at a satellite branch of U.S. European Command in England. So we lived in England, we lived in Cambridge, and then I got my executive MBA at London Business School while I was there. So I did that nights and weekends thing. Got out and we decided to stay in England. My wife had gotten out at this point and she was doing her grad degree at LSE as well. And so we thought we should stay in London and, you know, make a go of it since we both got our grad degrees there. And that was where our network, you know, our potential professional network was. But then the, we got out in the recession hit. Like, it was like 2008. And it was just like the worst timing ever. So there was no jobs. Nobody wanted to hire ex-military people at that time. In 2008, there was no military support for veterans like there is now, which is fantastic. So we working overseas more. So I went to Bulgaria next for my next job. My family didn't come with me for that. My wife moved back in with my parents, moved in with my parents and had my second son. We had two babies at that point. And so I moved to Bulgaria on my own for about eight months. Then we went to Doha, Qatar. So my wife got a job that got her over there and I started my own company and it was emerging market focused because that's what I've been working in. So I worked in emerging market kind of consulting and innovation side, like how to start businesses in these markets and work on infrastructure projects and stuff. And so in Doha was just good location because I could get to Egypt easily. I could get to Ghana easily, Uganda, China, places like that that I was doing work in. Did some work in, you know, set up a company in Doha too and did a startup there as well because things seemed like they were booming at the time. So it was 2010, you know, they just won the World Cup and there was a lot of investment in there. So but it wasn't as big an opportunity as we thought. So we left after three years. We, you know, it worked out well. It was a great experience. We were glad we were there. But it was a wonderful experience otherwise. Like, you know, we had great friends there, great local friends. Everybody 
that we still stay in touch with and stuff like that. And the travel was amazing. And just the, the projects we worked on were incredible. So it's awesome. Um, Is True Made Foods available outside of the States yet? No, not yet. We're working on it. We get inquiries all the time, but you know, it's like everybody's always pretending they're an importer and exporter and you got to look and make sure you're partnering with the right people. Which we'll chat after. I, th- I know someone that I could potentially introduce you to that I think is legit. You'll be the judge. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So fast forwarding, it bothered you that ketchup was so unhealthy. Kids loved ketchup. Everyone loves ketchup. It's just so much sugar. So you develop a product that tastes just as good, if, if not better, and has no sugar. Yeah. And we, we actually didn't start with a full no sugar. We started with a low sugar version. So Okay. We started with carrots, butternut squash, and like that got basically we just tested and tested until we got to a point where we were using half the sugar in a regular ketchup. So like a regular ketchup is four grams of sugar per serving. We so we got to a point where it was at two grams of sugar per serving. I thought, okay, that's probably good enough to start. There's no other no sugar ketchup in the market at the time. This is like 2015, 2016. So that was kind of like our minimum viable product, right? So to speak. And like so we pushed that out there and that was the initial kind of product that we went out to market with. What does that look like? You have a product, you think it's good. How do you go to the market? What's your go-to-market strategy with a product like this? Tell you what I did, and I can tell you what I recommend for people (laughs) instead. Okay. So what I did, we launched out of an accelerator in New York called FoodX, which doesn't exist anymore. But there was a food accelerator. Again, like 2016, there was a lot of money coming into food from the tech side and people were getting excited because like the market was shifting. And so I was getting really excited about this idea. And so we jumped in full in and they, you know, the accelerator was great because it forced me to do the company full time, which I don't recommend doing until you really have a really figured out product for a while, you know? So like, but if I hadn't done it full time at the time, I could probably would have faded out. I probably would have gotten a job or something like that between four kids and I can't do a startup, a full-time job and take care of four kids at the same time. So it forced me to do it full-time and uh, the accelerator did. And they, that gave us an initial like $50,000 too, which helped like really reduce the, the cost. But the idea was, you know, there was all these craft foods coming out of New York City at the time. So my dad lived in New York at the time. He had an apartment there. So I had a place to crash and we launched out of New York City. And the idea was just, we just took the product around to all the different New York is full of a lot of these small specialty stores, right? Higher end stores where you can just talk to the manager. Italy and yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the smaller ones too, like yeah. Brooklyn Fair and things like that. Yeah. Society Fair and Williamsburg and everything. And so like you, you bring your, your products in, you know, you pitch it and you give them a free case and then you, know, you go back and you demo it a few times to get customer feedback, talk to people about it. And you figure these are the shoppers who are looking for something new who aren't price sensitive. So that was a test. Yeah, you know, that was the first year. I was totally just testing the market in these small stores in New York. You know, drive up to New York or take the bus up to New York and take product around to all these stores and things like that. Delivering it myself, following up with the stores myself, trying to get paid you know, things and testing the market that way. I think right now I would tell somebody instead to go online first to do your own, do your website, do your own direct to consumer. Maybe set up Amazon if you understand Amazon. You can do a, do a merchant FBM with someone by merchant on Amazon, but then do events like farmers markets, flea markets, things like that to get people sampling the product and buying it the first time and then getting try to reorder online and see how many like follow on orders you get from online. 
you can go to local stores and things like this. I would not do what I did, which was living in Virginia and trying to sell in New York because that was just like too much on me and my family and everything like that. I was lucky my dad lived there, had an apartment there, so I was able to crash, had some place to crash, but it was just, uh, you know, the commute was just awful. So I would, you know, go to your local stores, test things out, figure out your category really well. That's one thing that we didn't do really well is, uh, so I think the mistakes that we made early on are really the key, which is like one, our category is very difficult because it's, it's a slow turn category, right? Naturally, right? So how many times a year are people buying ketchup, right? Or, or it's like you're buying it. What is the answer to that? The average household in America buys it 3.3 times a year, right? Ketchup okay. and mustard's like 2.2 or something like that. So, and that's very skewed, right? Because you have single people who never buy it or buy it once every two years. You know, there's one bottle sitting in their fridge forever. Or you have families with like, five kids like mine who are going through it on a regular basis, you know, buying it almost weekly, right? But these very few shoppers who are buying it a lot. And the problem is, is like those people who buy that product a lot for our category, they don't shop in specialty stores and they don't live in New York City, right? Things like that. And they don't live in Brooklyn, right? Because you don't have, unless you're Orthodox Jewish and you live way up in the uh, alphabet area and stuff like that, you probably don't have eight kids and are living in New York City, right? So this is like the challenge that we had with this category. And it took me a while to figure this out, which is like, you know, these special, this route that we took, we were copying other like very artisan, natural food, kind of crafty foods that were coming out at the time, things like this. And they were in different categories where that worked, like coffee, things like this. And it doesn't work well with condiments because ketchup is boring. It's ubiquitous. And this is what I liked about it. It's boring, ridiculous. It's, it's suburban, right? It's suburban purchase. And it's very conventional. It's a billion-dollar category in conventional food sales. And it's like a $15 million category in natural in the natural channel. Hmm. Like, so I mean, you look like a conventional store, like Stop and Shop, sells like $50 to $80 million in ketchup a year, right? And Whole Foods only sells $12 million ketchup a year, right? So if you want to... At the time, and still, it's a still a viable strategy today. If you're better for your food, you know, you want to get your first five to ten million dollars of sale, like in a specific channel or in a specific region, right? So, like if you're selling a kombucha or a jerky or something like this, you know, you just focus on your local region, or you just focus on like your Whole Foods channel if you get into Whole Foods, right? And you just try to own that region and try to get up to five ten million dollars in sales. And you can't do that with ketchup or barbecue sauces and things like this, right? Because trying to become a $5 million brand just selling through Whole Foods when Whole Foods sells $12 million worth of ketchup annually across all their 510 stores. And, you know, over half of that is their private label. Like an amazing amount of marketing and brand awareness that you would have to do to be able to get up to that, you know, uh, consumer. And it's a slow-term product. So, you know, every time you convert a consumer they're not buying it every week or every day, like with a beverage or a salty snack, like they are buying it then in the next month or three months or four months, right? So you've got to constantly be bringing, if you want to keep driving your sales up, you have to constantly be finding new consumers. So it's like the math behind it is totally different, right, for our category. So it's like the two challenges with our categories, very slow turn and very conventional focus, which is more expensive to operate in and harder because you're working with big stores like ShopRite or Stop and Shop, Giant and Safeway, which are more expensive, more difficult to deal with, you know, that kind of thing than other than the small channels and stuff. So that was the hard part with us is like, we tried to launch this crafty kind of thing 
and it you know it doesn't work and marketing yourself as a crafty ketchup doesn't work in stop and shop like it's not you're not your product's not going to sell you know so we had to pivot our branding multiple times away from that crafty look you know that we started with to be kind of a more of a bold more approachable more conventional we want to be better for you but we want to be seen as like an american big big american brand that's approachable and better right so we had to like balance that out so so that was like our challenge early on that's why it took a long time for us to get started to figure it out yeah it's so interesting really good takeaway there is when creating your customer persona a common misconception is when creating your persona it's like oh we want to reach health conscious people and not looking at the data behind how much are certain segments of people buying the the certain category mm-hmm. yeah that's really interesting yeah and you really got to figure out and like like again like our biggest best customers are people with kids or people with grills like backyard grills and again like people in new york don't have grills like they're not cooking out outside right and so it's like that so we need to find so we're in a, we're a suburban product really at the end of the day and we need to be in suburban stores and so and targeting suburban shoppers which is right. harder more expensive they're further apart you know harder to reach kind of thing so that's like your challenge if you're developing a product especially a food product or a beverage you really need to think about like who's your shopper who's your buyer what channel are they on how are you going to find them where do they want to buy your product again which is why like going online i think initially is the best thing to do you find your if you can get people buying online on a regular basis, at least then it shows like some data, some customer loyalty, be able to figure out who your customer is and what resonates with them too. And like, that was a challenge with us too, is like, we're making these products with all these vegetables in them, which is the ultimate selling point. I think most people were mostly convinced. And like when we did a lot of customer interviews, people love the fact that there's carrots and butternut squash in the product, but it's also the biggest barrier to trial, right? We realized pushing the vegetables first just makes people weirded out. And that's the other thing like about a food product is if you want some type of mass appeal, you don't want to be weird, right? You need to de-weird your brand. So we are, especially if like if you're ketchup, right? Because the biggest thing going through a mom's head when she's looking at this ketchup with carrots and butter and squash on it is like, are my kids going to eat this? Or am I going to bring it home? They're going to get pissed off. They're not going to eat it. They're not going to eat dinner. And then this bottle is going to sit in my refrigerator for three months until I finally just throw it out, right? That's what every parent is thinking, right? When they're going through that first thing. And so you need to kind of make it easier for them. So we finally got to the point where we were like, all right, the veggies are like a secondary thing where we want to, that's how we close the deal. It's the no sugar. And that's where when 2018, we found and watched the no sugar version of ketchup. We realized we could add apple and completely cut the sugar. And that was really game changer. So we focused on no sugar first and just like drove the no sugar piece of it and got Whole30 certified and Paleo certified and things like this, that kind of, and keto certified. So, you know, really try to like pull in all those channels, you know, get that social proof going. And we still are up against that barrier because people expect things with no sugar to taste bad too, right? As they do normally. What's interesting is I think it makes a lot of sense to lead with no sugar. It stands out, especially in this space. That said, something I always find interesting is how you could see a candy box that says fat-free on it. And it's like, yeah, sure. But as a ton of sugar, sugar converts to fat. Have you found that challenge? How much of a priority is educating consumers about sugar and, and what it does so they understand what zero sugar means? Like the ultimate, we're up against a lot of challenges, but we think yeah. 
we're riding a wave of education that's happening organically, right? right. So that's true. Otherwise, you know, we can't do this ourselves. Like, I think that's something that's important when you're starting a product, unless you've got $20 million in your own money that you're ready to pump, pump into educating the consumer. But like, hopefully you're riding a trend where somebody else, other people are educating the consumer for you and you can, you know, ride that wave. And, you know, we think we're just at the tip of the iceberg. And I think that was a key for us when we started too, is like no sugar was not as big a deal in like 2016, 2017, and then 2018, it really started, people finally started to, to get excited about no sugar. The, and it's just getting bigger and bigger every year. So we have this challenge where there's, you say no sugar. And then the other problem is everybody else, a lot of the other brands, including Heinz that are riding the no sugar wave, have an artificial sweetener, no sugar version product, right? Either in barbecue sauce or ketchup. And usually it's super low and it tastes terrible and it's bad for you. And so we have that barrier as well that people are going to, we love to see that those products are selling really well because it means that the no sugar thing is so big that people are making the accessory sacrifice just to be able to buy, you know, the, so they're buying the super low products. So we're hoping we can start converting them and say, Hey, here's one that doesn't use an artificial sweetener where you're eating apple, carrots, and butternut squash instead. And it tastes much, much better too. So that's yeah. kind of our big push on that. Is that's like, interesting. How much of the condiment space is sold directly to consumer versus B2B to, you know, to ballparks, to restaurants, to all the different places that, that you'll find condiments? So I think like Amazon's share of ketchup is tiny. I want to say it's like $8 million a year or something. No, it's got to be more than that. It's pretty small. Amazon's ketchup sales are pretty small. It's weird because when we first look at it, we have ketchup, barbecue, and hot sauces. You know, in retail, it's like ketchup is huge, then barbecue, then hot sauces. On Amazon, it was the reverse. Is the hot sauces mm. are much bigger than barbecue and ketchup. And I think that's because you know people go to Amazon for fragmented categories. There's a lot of choice, and they want to find something unique. And hot sauces like that, it's a very fragmented category where there's lots of uniqueness and differentiation. And then barbecue sauce is a little bit more like that. And ketchup has never been fragmented. It's always been you know it's like private label and Heinz is 90% of the market. And then Hans is the next top 8% or something like that. So it's a, there's no differentiation really, or hasn't been for a long time in ketchup. And so it's, you know, people, why go to Amazon for ketchup, right? When every store has, you would assume if you didn't know about our products, every store would has like Heinz and private label, which you assume is the only thing that's available, right? And they're going to have an organic version. And that's usually the only thing people think are the, it's the only healthy option. If they're not familiar with our products or other um, natural ketchups. Online directing consumer is not a huge thing. And that's one of the challenges too, is why, and why we went stores first and didn't do online first is one, we were in all in glass bottles to start. And so shipping glass sucks. And Amazon actually wouldn't even let you initially. Back in 2015, 2016, at first, Amazon wouldn't let you ship food in glass bottles or sell food in glass bottles because of the breakage risk. So um, they changed that in 2017, I think, if I remember right. But that's one of the reasons we went store first too, is like, consumers don't buy our products online and purchasing online, like really only makes sense if you're buying in bulk. Again, you know, it's, it's a slow term product. So who's buying three bottles, six bottles of ketchup or barbecue sauce at a time. Then again, very difficult to measure repeat sales on your customers because you could sell a case, six bottles of ketchup to a customer and they could be one of your best customers. They can absolutely love the product. You may not see a sale from them again for another year at least, right? Because they just bought six bottles. Maybe that lasts them over a year, maybe it lasts yeah. two years. So what have you found to be effective channels of reaching fragmented suburban families? 
obviously it's taking us a while, but getting into the right stores. So like key stores and right. markets and things like that. You're doing in-store events like demos and things like that. So pre-COVID, our biggest marketing, what we realized we found for biggest marketing was events. We would do field marketing events and demos in stores. So we did, we used to, there are gluten-free events all over the country. We do all of those, try to saturate that allergen-free, gluten-free market where people are really, because that's an early adopter consumer that's suburban-based usually and kids, and they're very hungry for new products and they don't trust any conventional products. And they're also very active on social media. It's like that. It's a very small community. It's a very small percentage. You know, if you can get into that community, they will promote your products significantly. Like there's a lot of Facebook groups where they're you know, talking about products all the time, sharing. So we did that. We then discovered fitness events too, which we found were amazing. And even like bodybuilding shows, things like this, especially with the no sugar products, the bodybuilders are again, very, you know, they're eating very bland meals most of the time, things like this. And so they're really excited to find some type of sauce that they could use that wouldn't throw off their macros. And they are also very active on social media and promoting the product and things like this. And at the fitness shows, you get dietitians and fitness instructors. So we're trying to find these kinds of early brand ambassadors and advocates that we can create a personal connection with. And dietitians are another one. So we do dietitian shows and go to places where dietitians are and try to convert dietitians and work with them. Anywhere where we can find brand advocates who are interacting with people, either on social media or in person on a regular basis. And, you know, so that they know and can recommend our products. And that was the key thing that we did all the time. And so it was all about kind of interacting, trying to find these people, creating events, creating a memory. So we found in person things were, you know, just the most important thing we could possibly do. They'll wear you out. That was key. So we did foodie shows, you know, uh, family show, anything family focused, mom focused, health focused, fitness focused. Like that was kind of like the there's a Venn diagram of like family, fitness, food. Like that's actually we have a t-shirt that says family fitness food for Tremade Foods because that's like the, our key. Family thing fitness right food. I like that. Yeah. That's a good saying. Yeah. 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 And so that I mean that leads into the league side, right? Which is why we think hopefully league side will be really great for us, is because it's Connecting with those suburban families, it's like an in-person, kind of not always in-person, but almost in-person, as close as you can get, sampling, getting in front of people, getting connected with them, and, you know, and then them being brand advocates for you afterwards. Yeah. I must say the families in these youth sports organizations, once they learn more about True Made Foods, they're so excited to have you as a sponsor and also excited about the product, which is just a tremendous win-win helping more kids play sports and live healthier lifestyles. So I love how our missions align. Yeah, I know. And I mean, I felt the same way, especially as somebody who spends like 90% of my time when I'm not working on roommate foods is I'm driving kids around or dealing with some type of youth sport thing. Like it's become my life. I was telling some parents the other day, it's like, so I'm not talking about work or kids sports. Like I have nothing to talk about. Like I really, like I have no conversation. <laughs> yeah, so, I feel that. <laughs> yeah. It's like my kids are, you know, my three oldest are just like in serious sports. They're all serious athletes. And they, you know, we've, my daughter who's 11 has been in travel soccer for three years now, which is insane to think about at 11 years old. And she just turned 11. So she's in fifth grade. My wife has become, her mom has become the team manager for the past two years too. So we're like, all in the, the world of soccer. So, and then my wife is throwing acronyms at me like CCL and NCSL, EDP and all this stuff and ODP constantly. And I'm trying to keep track of it all. 
<laughs> and I've got, you know, my oldest, my two oldest boys play football very competitively and they, you know, they did travel football and AYFL and now they're going this weekend, we're going to be in an FBU Baltimore camp. Nice. Like so it's like, yeah, so we're always doing these things and doing these events. And so we're trying to figure out how to, I love, and what I found too with youth sports is, and this is why we really want to work more with youth sports is there is a lot of knowledge in the coaches, but the coaches about uh, training, about the sport and about, you know, physical training, about like working out, like they've gotten a lot better, but the coaches have gotten really smart about physical training and about fitness. The coaches still don't know anything about nutrition, you know, and they tell, they're constantly telling the kids to eat healthy. They don't know how to tell the kids to eat healthy. And then you go to the events and they're selling junk food, you know, so the Friday night food, whether it's the high school or the youth sports and the snacks that parents bring for the post game, it's like complete junk food all the time. And to the point where I've like almost like had to try to take over certain things and be like, okay, nobody else is buying food for this event. Like I will just, I'll provide all the food. I promise you it'll be really, really good. I promise you, you will love it. And, but it's not, <laughs> I'm just so sick of like seeing all junk food showing up, you know, from Gatorade thinking, you know, seven-year-old kids playing soccer don't need Gatorade. It's like, they don't, they're not, they're not it's not the Tour de France. They don't need a cliff bar and Gatorade. It's like way too much fructose for them. You know, so we think there's, a, I think there's a great opportunity here to help educate and bring this together. And the kids are doing something about fitness, you know, and it's so important and parents are so insane about their kids' sports right now. But nutrition is one thing that they have not, you know, learned to take seriously yet. That's not the parents' fault or the coach's fault. Like the, the, the material out there is bad. You know, people still go off of the calories, the calorie thing. But it's, it's not, you know, and you think, oh, kids can eat anything because they burn so many calories. And that's not true. Toast, well, which is sucrose table sugar is 50% 50% glucose and 50% fructose you burn glucose your body burns glucose but your body can also make glucose out of anything like out of protein but glucose is a simple sugar it if it consumed in too much it causes creates fat creates visceral fat but fructose is the real problem and fructose is agave syrup juice corn syrup is 100% fructose and it's not metabolized by the body like your body doesn't burn fructose as a calorie. So the calories in fructose don't even count. It's like alcohol. It goes right to your liver. So giving a kid a Gatorade is like giving them a beer, basically, except for the, the uh, metabolically. It's like exactly like giving them a beer. So it goes right to your liver. Your liver can't handle, especially the little kid's liver, can't handle all that fructose. gets overwhelmed. It creates visceral body fat and it spikes insulin. Again, people thought because it doesn't spike blood glucose and the reason fructose doesn't spike blood glucose is because it's not getting metabolized. So it's not turning into sugars in your, in your bloodstream that can be burned by your cells. It's going right to your liver and causing, but it still spikes insulin because your insulin is a hormone that is, reacts to be able to handle that, to be able to take care of that sugar. So it causes insulin resistance faster than anything else that you're eating. So again, another rabbit hole we could go down. Interesting. And, and yeah, like to your point, you're riding a wave of education. People are becoming more aware of, you know, just health and how to be healthy, but there's still so much more room to grow right. that you're seeing at every game that you're going to on the weekend. Yeah. So we, so our communication strategy is, and that's what's key about our product. And I think why we do well is because 
we try to keep it simple. It's like no added sugar, right? So no sugar. People are starting to know that sugar is bad. So no sugar. I say we more vegetables, veggies instead, right? And so we're not trying to educate them about nootropics or, you know, ashwagandha or like some other type of weird root or matcha or something like this that, <laughs> you know, most suburban families have never heard of, don't understand the concept of and things like this. And you're like, we're just saying veggies, like everybody knows carrots are good for you, right? Or apple, apples should be good for you, right? right. There is some confusion because apple juice is bad for you, but apples are still really good for you. So like, so like apples, carrots, butternut squash, people understand these are healthy things, tomatoes, like so you should be eating these things and you're, you, so, and you want your kids to eat more of them, right? And so yeah. that's kind of our, our piece right there. Yeah. And through a strategy that you found to be effective through the, the you know, fitness events, youth sports, sounds like you're finding these micro influencers in each of these communities that will ultimately love the brand and promote it to other health conscious, family oriented people in the community. So, yeah. And I hope, you know, we hope that, that the education just keeps getting better and more, you know, people get out there more and they start listening to the doctors who are saying the right thing and the, the dietitians that are saying the right thing out there yeah. about eating whole foods, cutting out sugar. You know, I think, like veganism and plant-based got highly accelerated because, you know, it was like the perfect combination. You had hundreds of millions of VC dollars pouring into these companies that then spent it all on PR, right. To pump up, you know, vegan lifestyle and created documentaries and got celebrities on board and everything like this. And the milk and the meat industry were taken totally flat-footed because, you know, plant-based meat and plant-based milk have been been around forever. And it's always been like, 0.1% 0.1% of the market and they never thought it was. And then all of a sudden all this money came in, promoted it like crazy, you know, and become a thing. I think it's over-promised, obviously, because like, if you see Beyond Meat's share price, right, I think they went a little bit too far. And the problem with the sugar, the anti-sugar movement is like, there's not hundreds of millions of dollars coming in promoting anti-sugar or no sugar diets, right? Instead, you have hundreds of millions of dollars being spent by the sugar lobby, SIA, the sugar industry of America, and, you know, the large corporations for large food corporations and soda companies for the last 30 years, trying to change the nutrition and change the advice out there. It's like this and buying doctors. And so we're fighting the oxidant. So all the no sugar movement is completely organic. And so I think we're getting in kind of ground floor, which is always risky because you don't want to be too far ahead, right? We're getting ground floor and we just hope we can just keep riding this up right point And, you know, as it turns, I mean, my theory is in like 10 years, Hopefully sooner sugar will be like smoking. Like people will be like, you know, completely turned off by the fact that they'll be looking back at like the way we look at 1950s movies with doctors smoking and be like, well, how did we that think that was okay? Smoke. Yeah, exactly. right, right. <laughs> or the fact that you could smoke on an airplane, right? And yeah, that was okay, right? So hopefully we look back and we're like, God, we gave kids so much sugar. Like, what were we thinking? And hopefully, you know, that changes sooner rather than later. But that's what we're trying to. I think anything you're doing from a marketing perspective, you need to try to make sure you're riding that trend because if there's not a mass awakening or movement happening around you, if you're not part of some type of wave, then you are battling alone out there. And it's that's a really, really hard thing to do for your own education. Unless you get like some Silicon Valley investor, you give you hundreds of millions of dollars to pump it all in PR. <laughs> Which We'll take, right? If there right, are any, if any Silicon Valley investors out there. Yeah. <laughs> well, Abe, this has been so much fun having you on the show. Again, absolutely love what you're building. 
It's delicious. It's sugar-free. There's vegetables. These are good things. We all be consuming healthier products, especially in this country, and you're making it possible. So before I let you go, we've got one last section of the show. It's called the lightning round. So I've got four questions for you and two minutes total to answer all, answer all four. So first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Okay. All right. First question. What is your favorite youth sports memory? My favorite youth sports memory, eighth grade basketball finals in this thing where we're playing for the final championship thing in my middle school basketball team. And I had just exploded in growth and I could jump like crazy. I could grab rim at 13 years old. And I was chasing down guys on fast breaks and blocking the ball up against the rim things like this. And that was my greatest memory. So I got called every time I did that, I got a foul called on me, but it was, so I was so upset. It was the most emotional thing. So it was like one of the greatest moments ever of like exploding as an athlete, all of a sudden, like turning the corner as an athlete. And then like the ref just screwing you over. Uh, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I want to be an astronaut. Nice. What is a brand whose marketing you admire most? I'm Nike by far. Like, I think they're just like the best. Finally, what is a go-to cause that you like to support? There's a lot of them out there. I think right now the one that comes to mind the most is the parkland shooting victim thing. Yeah. Well, Abe, thank you for servicing all of us with delicious food that is healthy. And, you know, we're cheering for you and just wishing you the best of luck. And I can't wait until everyone is refreshing their condiment uh, cabinet with, with everything through made foods. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for doing what you're doing too. Helping us out and like, you know, gardening, family, helping families, helping kids, helping youth sports. So, so important. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Windgren podcast with Abe Kmart. As a recap, we discussed go-to-market strategy, marketing strategy, and health trends, and specifically the negative effects of sugar. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Devin Brandoff. See you next time, everyone. Play on. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and leave a rating at leagueside.com slash podcast. For more educational and inspiring content, you can follow Leagueside on LinkedIn and Instagram at leagueside underscore. See you next time.